Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. and shakers and welcome to whining about herstory the women's history podcast where two longtime gal pals take a swig of some wine and talk about women from history that are mighty fine i'm kelly Ooh, and i've got the vapors over here i'll tell you what oh that was that was an intense like movers kittens and no oh, i loved it and it's funny because my mom very 1920s ish my my mom's been making fun of me <laughs> <laughs> because that, that's a mother-daughter relationship, you know? Of course. Your, your mother bullies you to make up for all the times, you know, you were a child and bullied her. Um, but she's like, Emily, who the fuck are you? Like, where'd you come from? Because I'm saying like, oh, he's a good egg or, oh, my cat's such a pill. And she's like, are you from the 1940s? Like, what is what is happening? Yes. I'm like, mom, I don't like, do you want me to say like, hashtag YOLO? Like, fuck you. <laughs> you're like i'm not no mom yep i mean i honestly what i should do next time i see her go full like transatlantic radio voice and on this and on this side of the world it's super cold so bundle up your so wear your furs ladies because it is negative zero (laughs) i have to like it's negative zero (laughs) yes it's been a long week, okay? It's been a long week, and it's very cold. It feels like negative zero. It's like zero does not quite describe how cold it is. Absolute zero does not quite describe how cold it is. It's just so cold. It is. It is so cold. Everything hurts. Everything hurts. The air hurts my face. The air hurts my face. It hurts my skin. Like when I was in Florida, it was in the fifties. Uh, the people we were visiting kept apologizing. Oh, it's never this cold, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I stepped outside and didn't feel this my skin cells actively self destructing because it was so cold. This is fine, <laughs> and now I'm back here where the air hurts my face. Always. Well, welcome to whining about herstory. If this is your first episode, I am so sorry. I need to stop saying that. I'm you not, are. I'm not sorry. You know what? Yeah, I'm not sorry. This is a you choice. On this. this is a choice you're making. I'm not going to forgive you for your toxic decisions. This is on you. Okay. You're the one making <laughs> unhealthy you. choices right now, and I fucking love you for it. <laughs> oh my god. So we. Are celebrating Black History Month as we do every February. 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 Oh my God. I had we a. probably d- just lost like half of our listeners. I just remembered. I had a dream with a Furby in it. And I, and I, here's the creepy part. In the dream, I was like, oh, it's actually kind of cute. Like, no, no, they're not. They're horrifying. I hate, no. They're, they're so gross. They're so creepy. Have you seen the ones where like, Someone takes the top and the bomb of a Furby and then they sew like a really long, like it looks like those wiener dog plushies. Yeah. That's terrifying. No, that's straight up nightmare fuel. That should be illegal. Yes. Healthcare should be legal, but those fucking Furbies should be illegal. This 
This is why we drink. This is the, why we drink. There's actually a podcast. I know. And that's is. why we drink. I'm like, it's those long boy Furbies. That's why I drink right. every day. Oh, speaking of drinking. Yeah. So sorry. Let me just wrap up my thought. I got totally derailed by thinking about Furbies. <laughs> yeah. It is February. We are celebrating Black History Month as we do every year. Here's our giant disclaimer. We cover black women all year. We do not only cover them in February. February, but because it's Black History Month, we really want to do our part to promote black stories, especially the stories of black women who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. So that is what we were doing all month. Get on board with it or get the fuck out. Seriously. I don't know why I'm like trying to fight our listeners. They're consenting to this. Yeah, Emily's just feisty I'm, tonight. I'm she so hasn't even feisty. started drinking yet. I'm so angry about the weather and I just want to fight someone about it. So Kelly, what are we drinking to calm my rage? What are we drinking to what calm we my doing? rage? I need my calm right. down juice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, kind of. My chill um, juice. We are drinking a red blend wine called Others. Um, just others just others That's isn't there a horror called. movie called the others or something maybe I don't maybe know. i don't know i don't know why i'm trying to make things up i think there is um so it is by department 66 it's like a graffiti style bottle there's no description on it so but i found one it says, striking a seemingly perfect balance between plushness and precision the vibrantly crimson colored Perfumes with cherry cola and fresh flowers while buttressed with brambly gargoo notes. I have no idea what that word is. Okay, I'm stone cold sober. I am the most sober I am ever going to be. And all of these words you're saying, I'm like, I hear the individual words, but I do not understand what as a collective they are trying to tell me. I'm not done yet either. Oh, Jesus. Straightforward and compact. The wine opens with bright raspberry and rhubarb and then reveals more nuanced hints of confectioner's chocolate schist which i'm pretty sure is a rock schist it's a rock i can almost guarantee you (laughs) and dried herbs ever present is a satisfying vein of acidity that perfectly supports this wine's complexity i don't understand this wine 90 percent sure schist is a rock okay here's the thing this wine yep schist is a rock okay the the description of this wine is the opening for every college paper I ever wrote, where it's like, how do I make a short point as long as possible and as complicated as possible? Right. I'm like, ooh, rhubarb. Because and- <laughs> I have word quotas yeah. to make. <laughs> I have a page quota. How do yes. I do this? No contractions here. Right. We do not use contractions. But yeah, I'm like, I don't know. I was on board until they said that schist because schist is a rock i'm I'm like okay who okay you know what kelly don't pretend that you're better than the rest of us you sucked on rocks when you were a kid just like the rest of us did okay admit it (laughs) admit your shame (laughs) no (laughs) every kid sucks on rocks they taste good i don't know why because we need our minerals what do you think the mineral and mineral waters are it's rocks (laughs) Just a bunch of drinks tiny rocks. Cheers to Black History Month and all the badass black babes who have made our society a much better place. A much better place. Especially, you know, 
when they shouldn't have had to fight to make it a better place because mm-hmm. we all should have just like been better in the first place. All right, let's drink. It's good. I definitely get the acidity in Ooh, the back. I taste the schist. I think that's what that in the back is. It kind of tastes like sucking on a rock. I get it. A little minerally. A little minerally, a little gritty. I like it. No, it's good. It definitely has that like... Yeah, a say that breaks up in the back of your throat and just kind of like permeates. It's good. I very much enjoy it. Um, I would recommend perhaps workshopping the description. Same. Because do you ever get... Do you ever get really drunk and you're trying to pay attention to what someone is saying and you understand every single word, but you're having a hard time understanding what they all mean strung together? That was the whole first half of that wine description. I'm like, I don't know these words that you are saying. Like, I know these words, but they do not go together. (laughs) You're using these words, but I do not know what they mean. (laughs) No, it's good, though. I'd recommend it. Um, Just. Oh, also, that's a great drunk test. read the description to someone like "Mm, you're kind of drunk no I'm not drunk and read them that description and if their eyes go cross they're drunk yeah (laughs) or if they pass out oh my goodness it's good though yeah it was it was worth that long walk all right well Kelly I'm kicking off the month of February 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 Furby Werby, um, which is appropriate because it is my birth month. Mm-hmm. The only reason that February is other, I mean, Black History Month is great, but as far as the weather goes, February is just this like long haul between coming down from the excitement of the holidays in January and getting to March where it's like spring feels closer, even if it's not in Minnesota because we live in a frozen hellscape, but it's got my birthday, so... I guess we'll keep it around. So today I'm whining about one of my personal childhood favorites, like one of my uh, herstory gateway women, Ruby Bridges. And I feel like a lot of our listeners might know who that is. I learned a lot more doing this research. And I also learned that I learned about why I learned about her when I was a kid. Like Hmm. it's interesting. Okay. So first I want to start this off with a question. Kelly, my darling. Yes. What scared you when you were six years old? Probably the dark. Yeah. Let's be honest. I was like six. Yeah, probably the dark. I would probably go with the dark. Mm -hmm. Things in the dark. So to our listeners, I want you to think back on all the things that scared you when you were were six. Like getting in trouble at school. When you were in six. When you were in the year of being six. Your sixth year on this planet we dare to call Earth. But like things like getting in trouble in school. A loud dog in the neighborhood that like always barks from behind the fence when you're walking by. Or perhaps like me, your fears were a little more complicated and irrational. Like someone dressed in a Mickey Mouse costume hiding in your closet. That was my biggest irrational fear when I was a little kid. I can still see it. But most of our fears at six years old were unrealistic, and we likely never had to confront the person in the Mickey Mouse costume hiding in our closets. But when Ruby Bridges was six, not only were her fears real, but she had to face them every single day on her way to school. 
Ruby Nell Bridges was born on September 8th, 1954 in Tylertown, Mississippi. 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 It's just... I know how to say Mississippi, but when you're reading the word and trying to say it at the same time, it's like, this isn't right. (laughs) There's too many S's and too many I's and too many P's. So she was the first of eight children to sharecroppers Avon and Lucille Bridges. Avon was also a Korean War vet, so which and the Korean War had like just ended right before Ruby was born. Uh, When Ruby was four years old, the family relocated to New Orleans, Louisiana. Nolens. New Nolens. Orleans, New Orleans, whatever wrong, you know what? Here's the thing. Whatever wrong pronunciation it you can think of. It does not matter how I say it. It's going to be wrong. So I'm going to say it however the hell I want. And it's going to be horrifying. Get over it. So by all accounts, Ruby was a super normal child. She loved playing jump rope, softball, and climbing trees. Still love climbing trees. Yeah. Just can't reach the branches. They I'm like, where did all the climbing trees go? I can't reach any of the branches. Right, the like I'm taller tall. than I was I when I was a child, and I still can't do it. I know. I'm like, wait, what the? Where did all the climbing trees go? Damn it. Um, but yeah, so she's just super normal, having fun. As the oldest, she also helped to care for her younger siblings a lot. So she had that ad responsibility, but that was pretty typical of the time. And the world was Ruby was born into was one of conflict, but also hope. The civil rights movement was ongoing. And just a few months before she was born, the Supreme Court ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education, determining that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Thank you, fucking Finally, said everyone with a brain at the time. With this ruling, states that still segregated their schools had six years to integrate. They're like, hey, we know it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of paperwork, you shuffling around schools, like, but you got six years. That should be plenty of time for you to get your racist heads out of your racist asses and just like integrate. Right. And we like can all move on. Racist. We can like all, you said, pull your racist heads out of your racist asses. Yeah, we can just all move on with our lives in a much more harmonious uh, world. So this decision did not go over well <laughs> with the segregated southern states. Despite the federal ruling, states still refused to integrate. It was this violent resistance to integration that led federal troops having to escort the Little Rock Nine to their school in Little Rock, Arkansas. And the Little Rock Nine, I think we've we've all heard that story, but it's nine, oh, were they high schoolers? I'm saying we've all heard this story, and then I immediately start telling the story wrong. But they were nine students going to school in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were the first to integrate, and there were angry protesters, and it was really violent, and they had to be escorted by, like, armed marshals, and it was, like, no kid should have to deal with this when they're just trying to go to fucking school. Like, going to school is hard enough, okay? So Louisiana was also resisting integration, uh, but they drew inspiration from the ages of discriminatory practices before them, and the Orleans Parish School Board issued an entrance exam required for students with the purpose of excluding black kids out of white school from white schools and i'm like oh this sounds like those literacy tests poll taxes like all those other it's like oh we can't enslave you anymore but we're gonna like find all these sneaky ways to still exclude you and be like oh no but this proves you don't deserve rights it's like fucking stop anyway this was their sneaky way of abiding by the federal regulations while still excluding students based on race 
So when Ruby started kindergarten in 1959, it was in a segregated school. But in 1960, after the Orleans Parish School Board, I'm going to say it that way every time, issued their racist entrance exam, Ruby was one of six black children in New Orleans to pass, meaning that they could attend the all-white William France Elementary School. And it's not France, it's France, F-R-A-N-T-Z. I actually tried to look it up. I was like, who is William France? And I could find nothing. Even the Wikipedia page is basically just about Ruby Bridges. Right. Like, okay, we're not going to get into it. So the school was just a few blocks from where Ruby lived, uh, but her parents were hesitant to send their daughter to an all-white school. Anti-integrationists had been incredibly violent, threatening threatening civil rights activists and children who dared to go to school with death and violence. The Little Rock Nine had to be escorted into school by the National Guard amid a crowd of racists who heard, hurled racist slurs and threatened the children. Like they're I, children. I know. I'm like, these are literal kids and you're like screaming at them because they're trying to go to school. Right. Good God. So understandably, her parents didn't want to subject their six-year-old to that. And like, these are just the people who are showing up at these mobs to yell at children. Right, exactly. It's the like, KKK, you something better to do. But like, the KKK is still a big thing. We've got, you know, crosses being burned on people's lawns. You have people being murdered it's and huge. lynched. Like, yeah. the threat is very real. So, but Ruby's mother, Lucille, felt that it was important. She wanted her daughter to have a better education and to have a better future. And she felt it was important to, quote, take this step forward for all African-American children. And that's a really hard decision to make because it's not Lucille who's, like, facing the mob on her own. It's her six-year-old daughter. Right. But it is, she's right, it is very important, you know, unfortunately, the children are the ones who have to like go into the school. So despite uh, the six black children passing the entrance exam, the school district did everything they could to delay admitting them as students. And by the time Ruby was finally admitted on November 14th, two of the six students had decided not to change schools. Shocking. Totally fair. Uh, and the other three went to the all-white McDonough D-O-N-O-U-G-H elementary Can't school. It's like McDonough or like... I can't remember how it was pronounced. McDonough. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, do you think I can pull off a New Orleans slash Irish accent? I can't and I won't. Anyway, so these students were known as the McDonough Three and uh, they were Leona Tate, Gail Etienne, and, uh, or excuse me, Etienne, and Tess Prevost. And they had to be escorted by federal marshals. I just, I'm like, oh, I, I looked more into them. I couldn't find a ton of information except that they also went to school in New Orleans on the same day Ruby Bridges did. So they were collectively called the New Orleans Four. Oh, okay. But they, they yeah. went to a different all-white school and integrated that. And so I, ju I just want to say their names because they were also incredibly brave and yeah. they deserve to be recognized. But that left Lu Ruby as the last remaining student, unsexy finger quotes, eligible Gross. to attend William France Elementary. So on November 14th, the same day that she was fine, they finally were like, okay, yeah, I guess you can go to school. In 1960, Ruby Bridges and her mother Lucille were escorted by four federal marshals into William France Elementary. It was a historic and momentous occasion, but you wouldn't know it by looking. 
As Ruby described it, quote, driving up, I could see the crowd, but living in New Orleans, I actually thought it was Mardi Gras. There was this large crowd of people outside the school. They were throwing things and shouting, and that sort of goes on in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. And actually, I found um, I found this article where she was watching the footage of her going to school as an adult, and she's like, I didn't, like, she didn't fully realize at the time what was going right. on, and watching it, she, she even though she knew that she was like, okay, she was terrified. She's like, this is horrifying. Like, I can't believe these people are doing this. Right. But they weren't throwing plastic beads. They were throwing garbage and rocks and whatever other bullshit that they had. They waved anti-segregation signs and one read, all I want for Christmas is a clean white school. Gross. All I want for Christmas is you fuck off. Thank you. So Ruby's innocence of the situation may have actually helped her stay brave in the face of the angry mob. One of the marshals, Deputy Marshal Charles Burke, said, quote, She showed a lot of courage. She never cried. She didn't whimper. She just marched along like a little soldier. And we were all very, very proud of her. And, like, the images, because it's these, like, you know, these big men who, you know, they're martial, so you like they're intimidating. And it's just the tiniest little girl in the middle of them. And it's just, it's so bizarre. And like, okay, we don't judge the women that we cover on their looks. She is cute as a button. She's she just the cutest little schoolgirl you ever saw. But the thing is, she wouldn't stand out in any other setting, right. you know? Ruby, in her little white socks, Mary Jane's dress and sweater, entered the school. White parents pulled their own children from the school, and all of the teachers, save for one, refused to teach while a black child attended. But one teacher was all Ruby needed. Miss Barbara Henry, a teacher from Boston, Massachusetts, stayed and taught Ruby one-on-one. And this would go on for over a year. Nice. Normally, the first day of school is full of like getting to know you activities. It's just kind of a wash. Like, you don't actually have to do anything. But Ruby spent her day, first day of first grade, sitting in the principal's office with her mother. The chaos surrounding the school and the parents pulling their children out prevented her from even stepping foot in a classroom. Jesus. So she spent the whole day sitting in the principal's yeah. office because there were adults outside who wanted her dead. This little six year old. The next day, Ruby's mother had to stay home and care for her other children, so Ruby walked into school alone, aside from the four men, armed men who escorted her. But this time, Ruby wouldn't be the only child at school. Five-year-old Pam Foreman and her father, Lloyd, broke the boycott walking into school, and Lloyd said to the crowd, I simply want the privilege of taking my child to school. And I'm like, yeah. That's what everyone wants. Right. You know, slowly more people began breaking the boycott and the mobs began to subside. However, Ruby remained the only child in Barbara Henry's class. As Ruby recalled, quote, the principal who was part of the opposition would take the kids and she would hide them so that they would never come into contact with me. Jesus. Like even the administration's even working to further isolate Ruby from any of the other children at the school, even though they're, they've like gone back. The harassment and the threats against Ruby didn't stop either. While the mob had dwindled, there were a few diehard racists who would threaten Ruby every morning. On her way to school, one woman threatened to poison the six-year-old while another woman held up a black baby doll in a coffin. 
Gross. And Ruby recalled later uh, that I used to have nightmares about, like she's yeah. referring to the coffin. I used to dream that the coffin was flying around my bedroom at night. Fucking horrifying. And there, there's a m- movie that was made by Disney. And I think that scene is in there. And it was just, it's like really disturbing. Because like the, the idea of like a child dying is just so tragic. But then like to threaten death against a child like that, using a doll, like a child, yeah. it's just, it's so fucking gross. The threads led to the U.S. Marshals only allowing Ruby to eat food that had been brought from home. So she typically ate her lunch alone and only had her teacher to play with at recess. And she can't. And, like, they don't even trust anyone in the school to give her food because they're like, well, they might literally murder this six-year-old child. Which is disgusting. This whole story is, like, a lot of just, like, oh, my. Right. It's It was really... It was good. It was good to research, but it was very, very frustrating. So Ruby wasn't the only target. Her father Avon and Lu- and uh, her mother Lucille were fired from their jobs. Grocery stores refused, free, ugh, excuse me, refused to let them shop, and even Ruby's grandparents, who were working in sh- as sharecroppers right. back in Mississippi, were forced off their farm. Wow! Like it went all like a, like this hate campaign against her family crossed state lines. The National Association for the Advancement of Color People, or the NAACP, ever heard of it? Hmm. Tried to help the family. Uh, they advised Avon against looking for work for fear of his, sa- excuse me, for fear of his safety. As Ruby recalled, "quote That in itself caused a lot of tension because I'm the oldest of eight, and at that point he was no longer able to provide for his family. So we, they were solely dependent on donations and people that would help them." And the stress and trauma of all of this did lead to Lucille and Avon separating. Oh. Which I, like, no judgment there. That is all of the, like, major family stressors. Yeah. Like, financial instability. You're not, you like, your children's safety is at risk. You're being physically threatened. You can't even go grocery shopping. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, it's just so sad. And Ruby says, I remember writing a letter to Santa Claus and asking him to give my father's job back and that he didn't have a job because I was going to school. So I guess somehow I did feel some blame for it. She is writing letters to Santa. Being like, please give my daddy a job. Like, that's heartbreaking. Like, no six-year-old should have to do that. And, and like, and here's the thing. I know Ruby was not and is not the only six-year-old to write to Santa right. because, you know, her one of her parents lost her job. But the fact that she has people screaming at her, threatening her because she's going to school, and that's why her dad, like, that's fucked. That's right. so, and that she's asking Santa Claus. Like, this is how little she is. Amongst the hate, though, there was also support. This isn't going to be just one, like, long punch in the face. A neighbor got Avon a new job. So Santa came through. Go Santa. Other locals would babysit and guard the bridge's house. There were also allies who would walk behind the marshal's car while they escorted Ruby to school, creating an additional buffer and like showing support. Like you're not alone here. We haven't forgotten about you and we're here for you. Northerners who heard about Ruby's story also donated money to help her family. 
Robert Coles, a child psychiatrist, volunteered to give Ruby counseling and help her cope with the traumatic environment after having seen the horrifying footage of her trying to enter school. This was perfect for him because he had actually been studying the effects of desegregation on school children. Hmm. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to pretend to be. I'm not even going to school to be one. But I would suspect that desegregation would have a lot fewer of the negative effects that people were worried about if there weren't mobs of screaming adults threatening death. Right. I'm just tiny children. Yeah. I'm just saying like, I, it's like, were the effects desegregation or the racist? (laughs) Probably the racist. Yeah. So uh, for a year, he would meet with Ruby weekly to counsel her. And Ruby later learned that his relatives had also sent school clothes to the bridges. So she, so like in the photos of her going to school, she's always in these like really like cute outfits and like these really, she's very smartly dressed. And she found out later her family was not actually able to afford those clothes for her, but they had been donated. So she could like at least go to school, like looking sharp. I'm like, oh my God, that's sweet. So Ruby spent that school year in a class of one, escorted by federal marshals every day, eating alone, having no other children to play with, and being threatened on a daily basis, all while her family was being victimized as well because she dared to go to school. To say the least, her school year was anything but normal. Despite all of this, she never missed a single day of school that year. I When I was six, yeah, I would have found God. much like lesser reasons to not want to go to school and slowly things began to change other black children enrolled at William France Elementary Ruby was finally allowed in a small class with other children and it actually wasn't until then that Ruby fully understood the gravity of everything that she encountered in that first year and this this quote I'm going to read does have a racial slur I am not going to read it but just uh fair warning so as she recalled quote a little boy then said to me my mom said not to play with you because you're a and the minute he said that it was like everything came together all the little pieces I've been collecting in my mind all fit and then I understood the reason why there's no kids here is because of me and the color of my skin That's why I can't go to recess. And it's not Mardi Gras. It all sort of came together. A very rude awakening. I often say today that was really, that really was my first introduction to racism. Because she was so young. And I think she was like trying to put it into context of like what a six-year-old would know. I don't think she fully understood going to school every day. Like that people were mad because she was a little black girl trying to go to school. But this moment, while devastating, also gave Ruby insight into how racism originates. She understood that she wasn't, that the little boy wasn't being racist because it was a natural inclination, but rather he was taught it. Literally, his mommy told him that he couldn't play with her because, and then is using a racial slur with her child who is then repeating it. Because the kid doesn't know any better. Exactly. The kid is sick. Exactly. And, uh... Yeah, but rather he was taught it. And she says, quote, which leads me to my point that racism is learned behavior. We pass it on to our kids and it continues from one generation to the next. That moment proved that to me. And I know there are a lot of arguments over like our natural inclination to fear who is different. But this idea of like, I can't play with you 
because of the color of your like that is taught the, the a natural wariness is different than racism so don't tell me it's natural for us to like be racist when Ruby returned to William France Elementary the next year, it was a much different environment. There were no mobs, she was in a normal class, and she was not the only black student in the school. However, Barbara was no longer teaching there, which upset Ruby. I didn't get into it. We, I might co- try to cover Barbara on a separate episode. Um, but Ruby was like, where the fuck is my teacher who was with me for a whole year? And the most dramatic thing that happened to Ruby was her being criticized by her new teacher for speaking in a Boston accent that she had picked up from her year with Barbara because Barbara yep, was from, from Boston. Boston. And I'm like, so adorable. So little Ruby's in class and she's like speaking in a Boston accent. <laughs> and the teacher's like, the fuck, we're in New Orleans. Like, you're not from Boston, child. <laughs> it's like, this needs to stop. We need to stop this now. <laughs> so each year, desegregation became a little more normal, though racism was still thriving. Schools that Ruby attended were named after Confederate generals, and the Confederate flag was featured heavily. Uh, despite a decade of desegregation, by the time Ruby reached high school, there wasn't a lot of intermixing between black and white students because, again, this is a, a cultural thing. These students are not growing up with this being normal and they're still being fed the racist rhetoric yep. at home from their parents. And then those kids are going to bully each other. It's like, oh, I saw you hanging out with the black kids. Or, oh, I saw you hanging out with the white, you know, like the, it's very easy for this to perpetuate. But now we look and we're like, oh, my God, a a segregated school? Are you kidding me? What? Like, it seems so odd. It just takes time. So Ruby graduated from high school with uh, little direction as to what her future would be. Other than getting the fuck out of Louisiana, she became a travel agent and traveled the world for 15 years before marrying Malcolm Hall in 1984 and having four sons. In 1993, Ruby's brother was shot on a street in New Orleans, and Ruby stepped up to help care for his four daughters who were attending William France Elementary. So now her nieces are attending the school that she helped to desegregate. Taking her nieces to school, she knows that there really weren't many after-school programs. She's like, mm, that kind of sucks. And then in 1995, Richard Cole, the child psychiatrist who had helped her, published a children's book called The Story of Ruby Bridges. And suddenly, Ruby was back in the public eye, but this time she received a very different reception. She helped promote the book and went on a talking tour to schools all across the U.S., just like promoting the book, telling her story, and also just promoting like, hey, let's all not be racist. Let's all like love each other and, you know, teach acceptance. The book inspired a biopic by Disney, which Ruby acted as a consultant for. And I think it was oh, that's so nice. I though. think it was this book and this movie that like I obsessed over as a kid. And so when I went to school and learned about the Little Rock now, I'm like, but what about Ruby Bridges? Like, where was she during all of this? Because <laughs> she was my context. So, which is why. I'm like, oh, how do people not know about Ruby Bridges? But that's because I was coming of, I was like growing up in the time where her story was suddenly like resurging into the public consciousness, especially targeted towards children. Yeah. So proceeds from Cole's book helped Ruby set up the Ruby Bridges Foundation, which helps students in impoverished New Orleans schools, including helping get after school programs at her niece's school, which I thought was sweet. 
The resurgence of Ruby's story in the 90s is when I had heard about her and growing up with her story being accessible made me think that everyone knew about her. But that wasn't the case. New Orleans actually didn't talk about Ruby or her story for a long time out of a combination of like contempt and shame. And it was just like she described it in one quote. She's like, it's the way Dallas didn't talk about the JFK assassination for a really long time. You know, it was just this. Yeah, it was just like however you felt about it was this uh, like traumatic and sad, like people didn't want to face it. In 2005, when William France Elementary was damaged by Hurricane Katrina, the city planned to tear it down, but Ruby stepped in. She campaigned for the school to be placed on the National Register of Historic Places, and she was successful, and this gave the school access to funds to have it restored and expanded. Ruby said, quote, so now it has been reopened, kids are back in the seats, and I'm really proud of the fact that I had something to do with that. The school now has a statue of Ruby in the courtyard. You're damn right they do. Both Ruby and her old teacher, Barbara Henry, were at the unveiling, and the two of her main lifelong friends. Interestingly enough, the formerly all-white school is now all-black. White flight, which began in the 60s and was compounded by the damage from Hurricane Katrina, has led to the resegregation of the school. And this has happened to schools and communities across the United States. So while segregation is lo- no longer legal, it is still incredibly present. It's like, hmm. it's, I don't want to call it natural, but it's this unlegislated segregation and then also because of you know racial housing covenants and redlining and all these other historic factors we still live in an incredibly segregated society even if it isn't legal so living legacy ruby bridges is still kicking ass and creating her own legacy and here are a few notable events that have added to that Ruby has written several books, including This Is Your Time, published in 2020, and Through My Eyes, which won the Carter G. Woodson Book Award in 2000. I think that was her first one. Uh, Her most recent one is a children's book called I Am Ruby Bridges, How One Six-Year-Old Girl's March to School Changed the World, which was published in 2022. So on the 40th anniversary of her historic walk to school, Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder made Ruby an honorary Deputy U.S. Marshal. Which I thought was so sweet. I'm like, man, she was, yeah, because she was walking to school every day with the marshals and she didn't, she wasn't armed. She's this tiny six-year-old. She received the Presidential Citizens Medal from Bill Clinton. I dropped my phone. It's fine. Uh, The Anti-Defamation League honored her as a hero against racism. And now two elementary schools are named after her. One in Alameda, California. One in Woodenville, Washington. And then I want to end this with an, like another legacy moment, but it's a little longer. In 1964, Norman Rockwell, known for his cutesy Americana paintings, painted a less than cutesy scene inspired by Ruby's guarded walk to school called The Problem We All Live With, which depicts Ruby in an all-white dress, shoes and bows in her hair, carrying a book to school surrounded by federal marshals. The wall behind her is defaced with the N-word, KKK, and the remnants of a thrown tomato. Ruby didn't know about the painting until she was older, and when Barack Obama was elected president, Ruby quipped that the painting should be hung in the White House to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the New Orleans schools becoming integrated. Obama was like, oh, hell yes. 
That's not a direct quote, but I hope it is. Uh, and invited Ruby and her family to the painting's unveiling at the White House. Obama gave Ruby a hug, and she described the event as follows. It was a very powerful moment. As we embraced, I saw people in the room tearing up and realized that it wasn't just about he and I meeting. It was about those moments in time that came together and all of those sacrifices in between he and I. He then turned to me and said, you know, it's fair to say that if it had not been for this moment, for you all, I might not be here today. That in itself is just a stark reminder of how all of us are standing on someone else's shoulders, someone else that opened the door and paved the way. And so we have to understand that we cannot give up the fight, whether we see the fruits of our labor or not. You have a responsibility to open the door to keep this moving forward. And that is the story of Ruby Bridges, who dared to go to school. Right. Six-year-old daring to go to school, right? Like most six-year-olds I know would be like, oh, I don't have to go to school? Great. This is awesome. Yeah, no. And I mean, I just, I can't imagine like at six, there being an angry mob of of like adults screaming at me and that not fucking me up. It makes me so Where it's so like, mad. I don't want to go to right. school ever. anymore. Yeah. Literally ever. And she had like, she had nightmares about that little cough. Like, ugh. It's just, it's just so horrific. And how long that this ordeal went on for. But my God, six years old, she she fucking did it. And even now that she's an adult and has the understanding and the background and the autonomy, like she's still working to promote equality to help school children in New Orleans and they're, oh they're very angry the dogs are also angry okay so we're we're taking we're we're having a little um test because the last one of the last times we recorded Dory was very upset and was like scratching at the Navi. door or Navi excuse me and so we're like well what if we have them in the room with us when we record maybe they'll just like chill out and veg which they have been doing up until now which i don't know what happened if one of them farted and scared the (laughs) other but they started barking because they are also deeply upset about segregation and racism maybe justin's home no i don't think so Uh, i don't know maybe it's just we're like raising our voices and they're like anger yep so angry but yeah, no, that's the story of Ruby Bridges. And I just made every little 90s kid yeah. who grew up with her story so happy. I know, because I'm like, you said her name and I'm like, that sounds super familiar. Yeah. And then you're like telling it and I'm like, yeah, I know like chunks of this story. Not all of it. Yeah. But chunks of it. Well, and I I think I like actually got questions wrong in school because like when we would talk about the civil rights movement, you know, it's like, oh, you know, does anyone know who first desegregated? I was like, it was Ruby Bridges. And like, no, Emily, it wasn't. I'm like, excuse me. Disney made a movie on it. (laughs) Like, Don't you you fucking sell me. (laughs) I learned so much from watching TV in the 90s. Magic School Bus was also my jam. Crap Brothers. Crap Brothers? Crats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Nature Brothers. Yep, I loved them. Oh, my God. They're so old now. 
like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to make fun of them, but like, oh my God, it's been 30 years and they were adults when I was watching exactly. them. Oh yeah. They're like, I'm pretty sure they now. still have a TV show, but they're animated now. <laughs> because, oh my God. I feel so old. It yeah, their show came out in, or Kratz Creatures, which I think was them. Mm-hmm. Came out in 2000. Oh, I swear they had a different show in the 90s because I would get like the VHSs from the library. Hey, look. Yeah, wasn't it just called like the Brothers Wild Kratz? No, yeah. that's the animated series. Oh, they also had did Zaboomafu, and that was the 2000s. <laughs> so they had two shows during the two, 2000s, though. Yeah, that's, yeah, no. I'm just going to, like, look at one of them. Let's just talk about all the shows we loved growing up in the 90s. Yeah, so, Z- so Zaboomafu was 1991 to 2001. Zaboomafu was 91? Yep. I thought that was the later one. Nope. What um, the fuck? And then, yeah, Kratz Creatures was 1996 and on. Okay. That's the and one that I'm was thinking where of. was just like the two of them and animals. Yes. And then, yeah, Wild Karats is like the animated show. Yep. 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 Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. Well, now that we've taken that beautiful walk down memory lane. Yeah. Kelly. I just feel like so... I don't know, energized by remembering how old I am, I guess. Yeah, no, nothing makes you feel more energetic by realizing how much bullshit you have survived. Right? <laughs> like, oh my God, there were so many times I should have died, but I didn't. Uh-uh, suck it, kidnappers. <laughs> All right, that's a way to look at it. I don't think I've ever been almost kidnapped, but I I don't know. Did Wait, I tell you that yes. story? Okay. Yes, yeah. I think yeah. you told it on the podcast before. Probably. Too. That time someone tried to abduct me and that I was, was like, story. no, thank you. <laughs> so polite. No, thank you. I would not like to be kidnapped. Yeah. I, I'd really appreciate not getting on the back of your motorcycle, sir. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> so, Kelly, who are you whining about? Who I'm, also hopefully was right. never kidnapped. No, no, but her story starts out rough. I'm, I'm literally going to give 
a trigger warning for like the first few sentences of my story. Okay. So I'm whining about Ethel Waters. And so now if you have a trigger, maybe just skip (laughs) a little bit. You have been warned. Um, so Ethel was born in Chester, Pennsylvania. She was the daughter of a teenage rape victim. Her mom oh. was her mom was thirteen when she was raped by oh god, a, a like a local boy, seventeen or eighteen. Uh. Um, she came into the world on Halloween of eighteen ninety six. Uh, her father, who that's where her last name comes from, Water. She chose to take his name. It, okay. that comes up later. Um, played absolutely no role in raising his daughter. Not shockingly. Okay, I hope he jumped off a cliff. Right. That'd be great for everyone involved. Exactly. Uh, soon after she was born, her mother would go on to marry a different man named Norman Howard, who was a rail, railroad worker um, with whom she would have another daughter named Juanita, so Ethel's half-sister. So, so wait, okay, so she has Ethel so, when she's like 13, and yep. then shortly after gets married when she's yep. like 14? Yep. <laughs> 14 to, or 15. To a man with a job. Yep. Jesus Christ. There are some records that say her mom may have been older. And by older, I mean like 15 when she had Ethel. Oh, well, God. But she was definitely a teenager. Yeah, that's. Mm. Yep. But so she had she had Ethel and then got married to a man named Norman Howard. They would go on to have a daughter named Juanita, which is Ethel's half sister. Um, Ethel would bounce around from a, from a lot of different homes. Um, when she was growing up, she was raised in poverty. She would live at different times with her grandmother, two different aunts and an uncle. Mm -hmm. So her early life was incredibly unstable and uncertain. She would never really stay at one place for more than like 15 months at a time. So about a year and a half, just under, you know, like constantly moving around. Her quote from her autobiography that she would write later in life said, quote, I was never a child. I never was cuddled or liked or understood by my family, end quote. And, I mean, she she's just being passed around. It's like, you deal with her. Exactly. You deal with her. You deal with her. And, I, and I'm not trying to um, shame her mother because, obviously, that was an incredibly traumatic thing to happen to her to be right. assaulted and then to have a child come from that. So I don't even want to speculate what was going right. on through her mind because she is also sucks. a literal child, but it really sucks that, you know, this poor little girl's growing up just feeling like Neglected. no one wants yep. her. She would grow tall. Um, she would end up being five feet, nine and a half inches when she was in her teenage years. Oh, damn. Yep. And she was known to be good looking to the point where when she was quite young, about her mother's age, like 13, she had a really young suitor that she would keep being like, no, no, like I'm too young, like leave me alone. Uh, um, finally, she said to him, ask my mother, like thinking, oh yeah, my mom will like stand up for me, like she knows what it's like. Nope. Oh God. As usual, or not as usual, but like her mother disappointed her kind of probably as she had felt most of her childhood being yeah. passed around from family member to family member. And her mom actually gave the guy permission to marry her daughter. So Ethel was 13. Oh my God. Um, when she married this man, it was 1910. And, and this is how like the cycle of poverty and abuse continues. Oh and he was, he was incredibly abusive to Ethel. God. Um, she would, uh, even being pretty young, she would 
understand that this was bullshit and leave the mar- the marriage pretty quickly. It didn't ever say if she like got divorced or if she just left, but she left and yeah. she she moved to Philadelphia on her own. Um and she started working as a maid for 475 um let's see 475 a week. A week? 475 a week. Oh my um, god. I'm trying to I never looked up the the conversion rate. The conversion, let me check. I was going to say this is the early 1900s now or is this like late 1800s? This is 1910. Okay. You know cuz wh- while you're looking that up, I'm also imagining, you know, like her mother yep, goes through this extreme trauma and then yep. immediately gets married. Yep. And I'm like this is the 1800s. I'm sure that was literally all she could do to find a oh, man probably. to make like, like an she, honest honestly, woman out exactly. of her because She's she probably was lucky that somebody married her. Yeah, because she would have been Quote viewed as lucky being because he was probably also an asshole. Yeah, because she would have been viewed as being like damaged. Exactly. Which is like, oh, you had a child out of wedlock. Which it's like no, no. Right. <laughs> I I had literally had a crime this was, committed. This was against not my me. choice. Um, I'm actually like. You know, not pleasantly surprised, but I'm surprised like her family was so accepting. You know what I mean? Because like you'll, you'd see that a lot of times where the mom and the kid would just get like shunned out of the family. Oh, the, I mean, I don't think anyone was super happy. That's why about I, it, just that's based why on the I way said, they said, treated that's why her. I wasn't saying pleasantly surprised, but yeah. like someone took her in. So four seventy five a week. She was making one hundred and forty eight dollars and forty cents in today's money a week. Good God. Yeah. Nothing. No. Nothing. And but, I'm sure she was working way more than 40 oh, hours a 100%. week, too. So she worked her ass off, and then eventually on her 17th birthday, she would attend a costume party at a nightclub on Juniper Street with just some of the friends she'd made along the way. They persuaded her to sing some songs, and she impressed the audience so much with her voice that she was offered professional work at a theater in Baltimore. Like, so there was like someone that like worked in Baltimore attending this party and they were mm-hmm. like, dude, your voice is amazing. Like, come back with us. Your voice is fire. Right. So she went from earning four seventy five a week to earning the rich sum of $10 a week, which I mean, that's a big step up. That's $312 uh, yeah. a week, which is like probably still not livable, but. It's better. We're definitely it's better. It's moving doubling. in the right direction. I mean, like <laughs> more than exactly. Yeah. So she made a lot more money. Um, however, she was cheated out of more money that she should have earned because any of the tips that got like thrown on stage that should have been for her, her managers took. God damn it! Right. Wow. Okay. So we're in big time Billy Holiday territory where it's just the exploitation of black talent. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and, and stealing yeah, their it, money. It happens throughout her life and it's really depressing. Anyways, after her start in Baltimore, Ethel would tour with the Black Vaudeville Circuit, which was very common. We've seen it with other women we've covered. Um, in her words, she said she would perform from, quote, from nine until unconscious. Oh my God. Which I love. So probably until like, you know, two or three in the morning. Yeah. Um, And despite her early success, she would fall on hard times after this and would end up joining a carnival um, that would travel in freight cars headed to Chicago. So she's traveling from Baltimore to Chicago. Um, She enjoyed her time with the carnival and recalled, quote, the roustabouts and concessionaires were the kind of people I was used to that I'd grown up with. Rough, tough, full of larceny towards stranger strangers, but sentimental and loyal to their friends and coworkers. Aww. 
She didn't last long with them, though, and soon headed south to Atlanta, where she would work as the, at the same club as Bessie Smith, who we I have previously covered. Oh, yeah. Um, Bessie demanded that Ethel wouldn't compete with her, cause, which makes sense. Like, you don't want to compete in the same audience. So she asked that um, Ethel not sing blues songs. Okay. Because that's what Bessie Smith was very famous for. Yeah. Um, and Ethel would concede and sing ballads or popular other music of the time. She would end up then moving to New York City afterward and bring her act to nightclubs and speakeasies across Harlem. Oh, my God. Okay. We always end up back in Harlem I, in the I was, 1920s. I was going to say, Harlem was popping off. Like, Gladys Bentley was... It, uh, what, Bessie Smith, wasn't she in Harlem? She ended up in Harlem as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Like, she kind of moved around very similarly. Like, not yeah. in the same areas, but she moved around a lot before ending up in Harlem, very much like Ethel. But there have been so many women we've covered where it's like, oh, yeah. And they were all best friends in Harlem in the 20s. Like, Gladys Bentley was rubbing shoulders with all these people. Oh, trust me. I mentioned a few more of them. Ooh, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, drink every time there's a name you recognize, unless you're at work or then driving. Well, unless you're drinking coffee. I didn't That's say fine. what That's you're drinking. True. Just um, sip. Sip, sip for your life. Sip something. <laughs> um, so she, like I said, she would move to Harlem and she would play often in the what what is iconic now, the Edmund Cellar, which was a very popular club in Harlem. Okay. Um, and by 1921, Ethel had become the fifth black woman to make a record, period. Fifth. Fifth. Ever. 1921. God. Right. Like, um, like when you hear this stuff, I know when you hear these things, I think it really helps to put in perspective how much further back a group, like certain oh, yeah. groups of people have been placed Decades. from the starting Decades. line. You know what I mean? Yeah. So at this time when she for recorded her first record, um, she was with uh, Cardinal Records and then she would uh, later move to one of the, like the bigger black records. Record labels called Black Swan. Love um, that. Where she would work with a, a very famous accompanist. Accompanist? Accompanist, Fletcher, Fletcher Henderson. She would later comment that uh, Henderson tended to perform in a much more classical style than she preferred, often lacking what she would call, quote, the damn it to hell bass. So she, she liked blues, but she liked blues with a lot of bass. So it's very, I think that's funny. Damn it to hell bass. I'm like, I like that. I am in love with that so much. Right. Like, I want that to be my album. Damn it to hell bass. Yep. Um, and it's just me twerking. It's just me twerking. And it's it, it's not visual at all. It's just me twerking at a microphone Ooh. for two hours. <laughs> with bass in the background. Yeah, of it's course. just someone doing... And it's like the occasional flapping right. of my ass. <laughs> hey, flapping of my ass. If you donate to our Patreon, we can make this happen. Right. Again, no visuals. No visuals. Just audio. Just pure, pure ass flapping bass audio. Um. So she would record for so I'm sorry. I'm 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 embarrassed. <laughs> interrupting my audience. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Just don't follow through, you'll be fine. Anyways, she would record for Black Swan uh for two years. Uh and she, it would make her the her the contract she would have would make her the highest paid black recording artist at the time. Um eventually Paramount would buy out Black Swan and she would stay with Paramount like through the contract. That brings us to about 1925. 
So while she'd been recording for several years now, she hadn't really had like a major hit, even though, like I said, she was one of the highest paid black recording artists. Yeah. So she earned her first big hit in 1925 with a song called Dinah. Um, <gasps> that was my cat's name. <laughs> I named her after the cat from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, and she had so many emotional problems. Yes. Um, and she, this was the same year she would make uh, her first appearance at the Plantation Club on Broadway and then tour with the Black Swan Dance Masters. And it was at this point that her career just like super fucking took off. At the same time, during all of this, Ethel would go on to get married several more times, like on and off that would all end in divorce. Um, but one of her most profound relationships during the 1920s was actually with a woman named Ethel Williams. So another woman. Okay. So she was bisexual. Hell yes. Um, So they would actually appear together on stage quite often. And so they were dubbed the two Ethels. And obviously like they went through a lot of effort to conceal their relationship just because it was illegal, I think, in a lot of states still at the time. Yeah. Um, But they would rule the Harlem nightclub scene together um, and they would live together. And remember, this is they would. They were alongside a lot of other lesbian and queer singers like Gla- Gladys Bentley, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Lucille Bogan, which I think Lucille's the only one we haven't covered. Did we? We did do Ma Rainey, didn't yes, we? I yeah, did. yeah. Oh, so he, here's here's something else I just want to did point out. Did I cover out. all three of them? I th- I covered Gladys okay, Bentley. Yeah, yeah, I covered the other two. Um, but something. Okay, so I was thinking about this, and this is one of those moments where it's all coming together for me um, as a privileged white woman finally right? coming to understand racism better. Uh, okay, so we've we've talked about Boston marriages and white women in lesbian relationships in the past. And how the idea was like, oh, women aren't sexual, therefore lesbian relationships were more accepted. Right, because or it's more like, well, maybe just nothing- overlooked because they, yeah. didn't, they weren't like, oh, you're in a relationship because they were like, well, you're not having sex together, so there's clearly no, you're just friends. There's no penis, so this can't be sexual. Right. But... Black women have historically been over-sexualized. Right. So... So I was like, oh, I'm kind of surprised about, you know, that they have to be so low key about their relationship. And I'm like, but as, you know, women who are traditionally over-sexualized by the male gaze because of their race, that actually makes a lot of sense. So that's, I don't know, just the way that compounds the intersectionality. I'm just, I'm having a moment where I'm like, oh, wow, racism. It's fucking bullshit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So she said... Um, quote, what was it? So th- actually she didn't say this. One of her biographies, biographers, biographers. Um, actually it wasn't even her biographer. It was someone named Robert Philipson who did, um, a documentary about, um, the queer blues divas. So like I said, Gladys Bentley, Bessie Smith, mm-hmm. Ma Rainey, like all of them. It's called taint nobody's business. Love that. Um, but th- so this is what he said. He said, quote, What was occurring was occurring clandestinely or within urban settings that were more or less secret and difficult to penetrate. It was very much under the cover of night because they could be prosecuted for the same sex activity. There were some open demonstrations of alternative sexuality in the Harlem Renaissance and in Greenwich Village in the late 1920s. So like, yeah, there were some people like Gladys Bentley that were much more open about it. I don't know if she was necessarily open about her relationships, but she was much more open about like, 
dressing in pants and like yeah. looking more like a man. Her her iconic outfit was a tux yes, or like a white beautiful. tux with the top hat and everything. And and that was pretty out there for the time to the point where she right. actually needed a pants permit when she I moved out that. west. Yeah, so I if mean, you've heard us ranting about like pants permits, yeah. that's, I think that's the episode where it started. Yeah, because we were like, I'm sorry, you need a what? And exactly. Sir Lady Java, we talked about that. Yep. And, We've talked about it quite a bit. Yeah. Um. So she would go on to star at the Cotton Club, which is another huge, oh, yeah. like that is probably one of the top build like Harlem clubs that you'll hear about yep um where she would sing a song called stormy weather according to her biographer or autobiography so she wrote this one (laughs) according to her i know according to her she would sing stormy weather quote from the depths of the private hell in which i was being crushed and suffocated so during this time she was having a lot of problems where her managers were stealing her money so she's doing super well but she is not seeing most of the profit and it's really depressing like oh shit sorry i spilled some wine um when you're talking about how she's one of the highest paid artists i'm like okay like on paper or actually on paper because she's got you know the manager and the this and the that and i'm sure they're all taking a huge cut she's getting it's really really sad they're stealing her tips and all this other stuff um so in addition to um singing she would go on to start um, showing up in like musical reviews as well. Um, and she would actually get some featured roles in um, different musical reviews, particularly one called As Thousands As, As Thousands Cheer. She also would become the first black woman to integrate Broadway's theater, uh, integrate Broadway's theater district more than a decade after um, uh plays by Eugene O'Neill began showing, which like are ones with that have black actors, but they just use black faces. Oh. So she was the first black woman to actually like be able to join Broadway. Wow. Um, so after this time or while she was on Broadway, she would actually help hold three jobs kind of at the same time. So she'd be acting in a thousand cheers as a singer. Uh um oh sorry. She would be acting a thousand cheers. She was a singer on a national radio program and she would be working in nightclubs. So she's kind of got three jobs. Right. She's just running around. Um, yeah. She was, she was starting to become the highest paid performer on Broadway at this time. But despite this status and all these jobs outs, like when those things ended, she had a lot of difficulty finding work mm-hmm. because she was a woman and she was black. Yep. She would move to Los Angeles to try to kind of like continue her film career. And she would appear in a film named Cairo. And she would also go back to the stage starring in an all black musical called Cabin in the Sky. Um, apparently it did really well. However, there was some um, conflicts because the director would would swap um, some of the songs between Ethel and the other like leading lady because... Originally, Ethel was supposed to perform a ballad and the other woman was supposed to dance, mm-hmm. but the woman broke her ankle. So then she got oh. the ballad and um, Ethel danced. But she also sang a song called Happiness is a Thing Called Joe oh. um, and got nominated for an Academy Award because of it. Holy so, shit. You know, it kind of worked out in Ethel's favor. Yeah. In 1939, uh, Ethel actually became the first African-American to star in her own television show. Oh, shit. And this is, so, Nat King Cole is famous for having a a television show. I'm so sorry, what year was this? 1939. 
We had TV in 1990s. I don't know history. I'm pretty sure it's black and white television. I, no, I understand that, but I'm like, wait, we actually like had TVs. Yes. I, I always think of TVs being more like... 60s? 50s, yeah. if so, you were rich. So Nat King Cole would go on to have one who's also like a very famous, yes. you know, um, but that was in 1956. Wow. Yep. So it was called the Ethel Waters Show because creativity. Um, and it was She's a, the brand though. Exactly, that's true. It's like Ellen or There was um, another woman Drew? we covered that had- oh, the cooking lady. She was the inspiration for Tiana. Okay, yes. Yeah, she had her own show that was yep, named after her. Exactly. Fuck, what was her name? You covered her. I know I didn't. That's why, like, when I first Ugh. started researching Ethel, I was like, fuck, have I covered this woman? No. There, okay, we've finally gotten to the point in this podcast, and I by finally, I mean, we've been at the point for, like, two years where I can't remember all the names of the women that we've covered. I've made a list. I can remember... Like if you need to look it up, facts I, there, about it's on their the stories. Drive. I made a list. Right, but like I can remember like weird facts about their stories. Where I'm like, I can't remember their name. And that's actually the worst though, because yeah, then when you're reading a story, like a detail will pop out, and you're like, Have I covered this person, yeah. or is her story just eerily similar <laughs> to someone else I've covered? I don't know what reality exactly. is. So it would be a variety special. It appeared on NBC because NBC has been around for fucking ever, apparently. Yes. Um, and it would, so it, it included like dramatic performances. It, um, it included a performance that was based on the Gula community of South Carolina, which is still around. It's mm -hmm. like a specific community of um, African Americans. Okay. I almost covered a woman from there that's still alive that does like fifth generation basket weaving in like a very specific style. We'll see. Maybe I'll cover her later. In that's the month. super cool. I always have a little like nervousness when I cover someone who's still alive. Oh yeah. Like I, I really hope if Ruby Bridges ever hears my story, she's like, no, Emily, you get it. Like yeah, right. you, exactly. you, you, you did my story justice. justice. Exactly. So Yep. And then, so she did plays. Like, she, it was it was a variety show. She would do a whole bunch of different things. Sing, dance, act, whatever. Um, she would go on to be nominated for another Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in a film called Pinky in 1949. Um, and then... It's funny, though, because with that, she was under a director named John Ford originally mm -hmm. so the, the movie was originally under john ford who quit because apparently he had a bunch of different disagreements with ethel in particular and a, according to a producer that would that also worked on the film he quote hated the old woman which was ethel oh my god <laughs> and i'm like all right um apparently he said that uh, Ethel had, quote, a truly odd combination of old-time religiosity and free-flowing hatred. Old-time religiosity <laughs> and like, free-flowing hatred. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like someone I could get along with. I mean, okay, the religiosity, it, it depends, depends on, on the, the religion, flavor. Like, yeah. It depends on the flavor of that. If you're like, mm-mm, God told me to love everyone. So you better shut that racist shit down. Like, I don't know what, like right. what it means to be religion or religious. Like there are people where it's like, oh no, they're, they're religious. You know, they go to church a lot. They're, they're very nice. And you know, or right. it's like, mm, they're kind of super religious. And you say it like with the purse lips and yeah, the exactly. side eye, like as a way of being like, and they hate gay marriage. 
much. Exactly. And it's like, which is it? So in 1950, she would win a New York Drama Critics Award um, for the play The Member of the Wedding. And then she would go on to be the first African-American actress to star in a television series. Oh, my God. So she had her own show and was the first. And now she's the first to star in like an actual televised series. It was called Beulah, and it would air from for two years on ABC, because apparently they've also been around forever. Actually, I knew they'd been around forever. They've all been around forever. You had to start pretty early to get the first three letters sequentially in the alphabet. So Beulah, (laughs) just to kind of give like a little background, it was the first nationally broadcast weekly television series starring an African-American in the leading role. Wow. Yep. See, um, and now we have BET. Oh yeah, there's we like have so many all I, of these different ones. We have so many shows that are a predominantly black cast or have a black leading person, and right. it's like, no, that there had to be a first, right? So while Ethel played the leading lady, so she starred as Beulah for the first year of the TV series. Um, it would go on for three seasons. She would actually quit after the first season, c- complaining that the portrayal in the show was degrading. You know what? Good for her because it's we we've talked about this before. When the society around you will not give you opportunities that aren't degrading, you know, you kind of have to make that choice as to whether or not to continue or to right not. So uh, yeah, good for her, right? Because that's not easy. Yep. Um, so she would write her autobiography or I guess technically she wrote it with someone else. So it's, it's, I don't know. It wasn't like a ghostwriter situation. It was just, she's not a writer, but she like, I'm actually, you know. I'm actually reading a, a memoir that's like that, where it's written by the person who the memoir is about, but also a, right. like, a, a trained author exactly. because it, it's hard. Writing a book is hard. So It's called His Eye is on the Sparrow. It is now like a critically acclaimed book. Like Mm. it's considered a classic and one that a lot of like you should read because she went through so much shit for Mm -hmm. being black, being a woman, being bi. Like she got money. I I didn't find a lot about it other than just like little mentions that, oh, she got money stolen from her because I'm people like to hide that shit. But apparently like her autobiography is really, really good. And it was actually later adapted as a stage play that came out in 2005, so much more recent. Oh, I was going to say, and she was the leading no, actor so cool, in it. Though. That would be cool. She did get another chance to, she appeared on her own show again, this time on Broadway, so not on TV, but this mm-hmm. was called At Home with Ethel Waters. I love all the stuff that has her name in it. I it's know. like, no, you're going to know her name. Right. <laughs> and it would run for 23 performances. So that's pretty huge. So as she got older, she kind of like stepped out of the limelight and she had a weird turning point at the end of her life, or I find it kind of a weird turning point at the end of her life. She would go on, she would attend a Billy Graham crusade, which I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about Billy Graham, but we'll just move on from that. I also have thoughts and feelings. Years later, she would talk about like the night that she went to this crusade and she would say, quote, in 1957, I, Ethel Waters, a 380-pound decrepit old lady, which I'm like 380 pounds and decrepit pound don't decrepit go decrepit old lady. <laughs> Anyways, decrepit old lady rededicated my life to Jesus Christ, and boy, because he lives, just look at me now. I tell you, because he lives and because my precious, precious child, Billy, gave me the opportunity to stand there, I can thank God for the chance to tell you his eye is on all of us sparrows. I do understand right. the devotion to religion especially like after everything she went through and somehow like like her success is really one in a million it's very miraculous oh, 100% and, and you can't 
whether it's religion or general faith or a specific religion, you kind of can't deal with all that without having some kind of right. spirituality because the cold harshness of just, no. Yeah. Like, I, I get well, that she, as a coping like, mechanism. Like I said, yeah, like she went through so many people stealing shit. She was passed around from family member to family. She had a really rough life. So like believing in something bigger than yourself makes a lot of sense. And she, oh, did, yeah. she would eventually go on to get ca- uh, baptized Catholic, but she said she, like she considered herself um, a member of the Catholic religion throughout her life and mm-hmm. like had those beliefs. She just like didn't necessarily know what it was because she wasn't in like a position to go like look at, looking for religion. Oh, exactly. Like I was literally sent to a Catholic school. Exactly. I was very indoctrinated into the whole Catholic um, thing early on, but she's being right. passed around from family member to family member. So in her later years, she would actually like after her awakening or whatever she wanted to call it, um, she would actually tour with Billy Graham quite often, which I like, I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like a way to keep like that spirit alive. Um, I'm not a fan of Billy Graham, but you go off, girl. Right. No judgment here. I'm not in a position to judge anyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ethel would pass away on September 1st, 1977 at age 80. Damn. From, from uterine cancer, kidney failure, and other ailments. I'm like, man, when she goes, she's just like, I'm going to have everything. She does Nothing's everything. Nothing's taking me down. She does everything so big, including dying. Right. It's like, it's like Betty Nothing White. Halfway. It's like Betty White dying on the last day of, was it 2021? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, where it's like, oh my God, she upstaged an entire year. Mm-hmm. She upstaged the changing of an into a new year. Exactly. Like, and Ethel Waters, she's like, I'm I'm going big. I'm going big. I'm going to have everything. Yep. Nothing can take me down except everything at once. <laughs> exactly. Um, she's like, come at me, death. So she died in Chatsworth, California, where she was living at the time, and is buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. So she has a bunch of awards and honors that have obviously, like, followed her after the grave. Mm-hmm. Um. So one of her most famous songs besides Dinah is called Stormy Weather, and it is Mm -hmm. listed on the National Recording Registry. That one sounds familiar. In the Library of Congress. I I think it is. I I feel like we've probably heard it. recorded by other people as well. It's like when you covered um, Peggy... I keep wanting to say Peggy Smith. I don't know. I want to say Peggy. I think it is Peggy Smith. Is it Peggy Smith? That's what popped into my head, too. Never know how much I love you. Like that has been my jam. I sometimes sing that when I'm doing the dishes because it's such Peggy Lee. Peggy it Lee, was that's Peggy, what it is. Peggy yep. Lee. And so I'm like, it's not Peggy Smith, right? But like, like you were talking about, I'm like, oh my god, I know that song. Yep. Um, she's in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame, um, which she actually got into pro, uh, only slightly after her death. Which I'm like, oh, damn. Uh, she's in the Christian Music Hall of Fame, which is much more recent. Um, she was approved for, for a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But here's the dumb thing about Hollywood stars walk: like you have to pay for them, so or someone, someone has to pay. Like you get voted on by a committee, and that's why like certain big stars. There's like a really, really famous person that like does not have a Hollywood, like refuses to have a Hollywood, like a star. Because they're, they're like, like I'm not paying st- for well, it. Well, they're like, it's stupid. Like if you're, if you're doing it to honor me, why am I the one paying for it? But yeah. I don't know who it is. It's like, it's some really big celebrity now and I can't think of it. But so she got approved for one, like she got voted on, but like no one paid for it. 
Okay, but can, like, how long does that approval last for? I can we make this no, happen? I know, right? Like, guys, come on. Let's because kick, here's the thing. Let's kickstart it. Ethel Waters had her name on fucking everything, and she deserves her name on the Hollywood Walk of right? Fame. I want to go there and find it, because you and I are going to go there someday, and we're going to be the idiots taking selfies with all of the women from her street that we've covered, being like, Dude, I know her. We really need to do that. Like, I know her. Like, look, my handprint's in her handprint. I feel like I know her on a personal level. Oh, my right. God, her handprint are smaller than mine what the hell uh ethel was approved actually they, that's not the handprint no. one is it <laughs> no the hollywood star is just a star, star with their name yep. no yeah. yeah if you go to the chinese garmin theater that's where the that's where they have the handprint. yeah never mind i think you i don't know if you have to pay for that that might have something like up i don't care we'll go to both they're in the same city i'm gonna just bring a piece of paper that says ethel waters with a star around right, it like we'll take just, pictures with it yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Let's do it. Um, in 2015, a historical marker memorizing Ethel was unveiled along along Route 291 in Chester, Pennsylvania, where she was born. Memorizing to- her? Mem- memorializing. Memorializing. <laughs> yeah, there is you know, a marker both. memorizing her. Um, but it does. It recognizes her life and talents in her city of birth. That's awesome. Uh, she had a stamp in of 1994. she did. Yep. And then, like I said, she had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Outstanding Performance. So she she had a bunch of different things. And then she had three different recordings inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And, um, yeah. So that's pretty cool. And, and there's been a lot of, like, um, black female artists that have, like, talked about how... You know, she was an inspiration. I mean, along with like all the other women that like are from right. that same era. You know, I, okay. So when you started this story, I was thinking about the whole pulling you up by your bootstraps, American dream kind of narrative that we grow up with where it's like, if you're really, if you're a hard worker and if you're skilled, you can do anything. You, you It doesn't matter where you start. And this feels like that story, but. Right. It can't but. be because of all of the exploitation. Yeah. Because I'm like, at first I'm like, why don't we hear about these stories? You know, this is really a came from fucking nothing. Yeah. You talk about and, like what the like American dream that yeah. you like, yeah, pull yourself up out of nowhere. But also to tell her story, you have to acknowledge how everyone prayed on her American dream. That's true. To further their own fortunes. You know, like I, and actually I, I think that's, I feel like that's something that we're really missing because we're, we're given this myth about, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't, nothing in your life matters if you work hard enough. It's like, that's right. simply not true, yeah. you know? Um, but to understand that and to understand all the other factors that influence your success. Her story is a really good example of that because even though she was so popular and so successful, she was still being exploited and stolen from. And I don't want to take anything away from her because obviously she really, I mean, she just, she just killed it. Yeah. She did amazing and had everything working against her. But I think it's important to acknowledge the things that were working against her and how not everyone can or does get past that. Right. There are so many people whose names we don't even know who had a very similar story to her, but did not get her success for one reason or another. Exactly. Or got the success, but someone exploited it to the point where they're like, no, it's just me. Yeah. There's, oh my God. 
I don't. <sighs> yep. I don't. Okay. I don't remember the actress. Um, she's a black woman. This was within the last like maybe five or 10 years, but she, she received an award at an award show uh, for uh, an acting role that she did. And she's like, I want to thank all the people buried who didn't get to tell their story because I get to tell a story because of their sack. Like it it was something, it was, it was something along the lines of like thanking all the anonymous people who never got to get their story told, but deserve to and how she wants to work to tell their stories or, you know, and that really struck me because yeah, there are all these anonymous people. We're never going to know about them and they live some really incredible lives and it's just no one bothered to write it down or their life wasn't lived in a way that anyone paid attention or kept record, you know? Yeah. Or they didn't so have the opportunity sad. to write their autobiography. Yeah, exactly. Like they didn't have the means or opportunity or, you know, connections to yeah. either either write it because they didn't have the skill themselves or get someone else to write it, or find someone to publish it. Yeah, I. So I, I, I love Ethel's story because not only is it is it a story of perseverance and success and in in the face of incredible odds, but also it's a little peephole into what so many other people were confronting at that time, and didn't have the same results. Bravo, bravo, Kelly. Good story. It started out as a huge bummer. Right. Yeah. It started <laughs> off real hard and got better. You know what? You know, this podcast is all about like really upbeat stories of like, I don't know, this chick was bar and then she was awesome and nothing bad ever happened to her. So I don't know why you have to like feel the need to bring us down with this I'm kind sorry. of. <laughs> Says the woman who like was all holocausting it up last episode. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Don't you fucking come <laughs> at me like that. Don't you fucking come at me like that. I'll come in at you however our, I want. In our studio. <laughs> You're in my house. You going to come at me like that? <laughs> Throw a dog at you. We're fighting right now. Oh, man. Sexiest way possible. Clothes are coming off. Yeah, but it's okay because we're white women. Therefore, there can be no sex because there's no penis and we're not overly sexualized. Not at all. Yeah. We're just friends. Intersectionality is important. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Emily. Oh, Jesus. What are you thankful for? Um, Okay, so I After that rant. (laughs) I'm really thankful for the wine. It didn't exactly serve as calm down juice. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't wind down when the wine down. (laughs) Maybe next. I'll workshop it. I'll workshop it. We'll let you know. There's something there. Um, I I do want to say. Yes. I'm going to make a new merch because I saw this somewhere and I want to make it for us. But it says it's two wine glasses and it's a red and a white. And it says I go both ways. Yes. (laughs) And I'm like. That needs to be merch. Yes. So anyways, anyways, what are you thankful for? Um, Okay, so I'm really thankful. uh, My friend Katie, who's also a listener, and Katie, if you hear this, I hope the next time we take like a coffee walk, you're like, oh my God, I heard the thing. Because she she talked to me about the time I did the Encanto Mm -hmm. introduction. I was like, oh Jesus Christ, someone I know heard that. I'm so sorry. We love you, Katie. Let me get on my knees and apologize. Let me Um, beg for forgiveness. But no, so so Katie and I were chatting. I was telling her how I've been trying to learn Spanish uh, for almost a year now um estoy aprendiendo español uh yo necesito practicar más 
Pero uh, I'm trying. Anyway, her and her dad have been also using the same like app that I've been using to learn. And they got really into it. So they decided to get a premium membership, which allows for like a certain number of profiles to be added to that. So Katie texts me and she's like, hey, do you want a premium membership for this? And you don't have to pay for it. I'm like, oh my God, Katie. And it's been awesome. Like, here's the thing. If if we have a falling out and she's like, scorched earth, get the fuck out of here. I will pay for my own because, because like before I was having to like, use a bunch of resources to like do certain things or like I'd get dinged when I made a mistake like I'd lose hearts and that kind of thing and now basically I just get to be on it and do it for how much I want there are certain things that I will pay like the premium for Mm -hmm. and that is one of them yeah because you're using the same app aren't you yeah so I just I thought that was really sweet that one she thought of me and that too she's like we can practice together because she, you know, ella también aprende español. She's also learning Spanish. Ooh. I think I got that. Yeah. Moderately correct. Moderately correct. Um, <laughs> I I know enough to like really think about my conjugations. I love now. you. <laughs> Te amo. Um, but no, so I, I really appreciated that. I love that she thought of me and I love that she's encouraging me. And it, it, it you know, kind of lights my fire to keep learning. So yeah. Thank you, Katie. I love you. Thank you for giving me stuff for free so I can become smarter. Yay, Katie. Yo necesito ser muy inteligente. I need to be more intelligent. Oh, don't be mean to yourself. Con mi español, with me, with me Spanish. Mm. I'm hey, I'm just saying. Anyone who knows a second language is immediately smarter than me. See, si. and I'm trying to become more intelligent by learning another language. See, si. see, si. see. Si, I don't know how to say I. I concede in Spanish. <laughs> I concede. You just go okay, 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 okay. See, see, see. And put your hands up. <laughs> Wave them like you just don't care. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? Oh, it's been a week. Uh, <laughs> it has. <laughs> like, let me let me sift through all the things I'm pissed off about and try to it's find the nugget like, of gold. It's not that I'm pissed off. I was telling Emily, like, I did not, I did not sleep well last night. I got woken up in the middle of the night, and then I could not. Like, it was one of those times that I got woken up. I had to deal with something in the middle of the night. Which was fine. Like, it's fine. But then I could not fall back asleep. So I had to deal, like, I had to deal with something. And then I just, like, laid there. And then I was like, fuck it. I'm getting on my phone. And then I was up until, like, 3 a.m. And I was, yeah. And then my husband, when I got up this morning, he was like, you slept in. I'm like, I am so tired. Like, first of all, your attitude is not appreciated. Second of all, I will eat you right now. Exactly. (laughs) Do not tempt me, boy. I will yeah. push you down those stairs you're standing in front like, of. Make yourself absent from my presence. He did then make me breakfast. Good. So he made it. I mean, I guess technically it was like 1030. So maybe lunch. But the least he, he could made have done. It. And yeah. I guess that's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for my husband putting up with one, like me not having a job for the last like seven months. While you're in school. Yeah. But, like, me not having a job, me not really being all that present because I am, like, working and in working 
yeah, anyways, working in school, like, I don't have a shit ton of free time. Mm-hmm. And, like, he has never once com- like, complained. He's never once been like, well, why don't you pause your podcast? Or why don't you, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, he's, the whole, the last three and a half years, he's been very accommodating. Like, he knew what he signed up for, but he's been very accommodating. And I'm incredibly appreciative of it because, like, you know, it's been three years like there's there's a lot of people that after like a year would have been like fuck that like yeah. spend more time with me but like yep. even tonight like he's like have fun with emily i'm gonna go hang out with the boys at the game store and i'm like all right bye <laughs> well and like i okay so when he married you and when he was dating you he kind of knew that i was part of the situation 100 oh, like he knew um he knew it's a I package was a, deal i was a deal breaker i, was say, I hope <laughs> i hope your partner understands that too yeah that well it's a, it's actually a package deal actually one of the one of the things that really kind of got me off my ass of ending my last relationship is my ex did not quite understand that where I'm like I'm sorry she's one of my best friends and who the fuck are you right exactly it's like "Mm, she's gonna be here a lot longer I don't care if we've been living together for five years she's my bae and you can go fuck off exactly yeah no so I would do the same thing for Justin if Justin was suddenly like you can't see Emily I'd be like excuse me there's the door no actually you can't see her because you no longer exist (laughs) you can leave yeah and I get the dogs but I mean that that is a huge um not not to go off into an unrelated tangent that is a huge red flag for anyone listening uh someone who's like you shouldn't see that unless that person is like unless that person is legitimately toxic yeah and even then like to mandate you cannot see that person that's a huge red flag it should be like hey i have my reservations about this person i'm concerned yeah can we have a conversation yeah, it's not. But to just be like, hey, you can't see. You're that not person. allowed to see this person, or that person's not allowed to be over here, or right. yeah, it's like no, it's like I'm sorry, allowed. Exactly. What these words? I don't. It's like the opening of that wine bottle description. Like you're saying these words, but <laughs> they don't make understand no sense. It. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening to another incredibly rambly episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, where I, with the help of Kelly, am making a ton of catch-up posts because Teamer. I have not been posting about our new episodes for like a month or more. It's been more than a month. Teamwork. Like I'm posting from back in December and I, I just, I got really, I got busy and I got overwhelmed. And then like my anxiety kicked in where I'm like, I can't even think about this. So Kelly's like, and then I was like, Hey, can I help with anything? Like Kelly, you must've just sensed that I was spiraling or something. She's like, is there anything I can help with? I'm like, actually, if you can just create these posts in Canva, I will, I'll publish them but if you could just like make them (laughs) so thank you i'm also thankful for you kelly but yeah like us on instagram we're posting a bunch of new cool stuff we're also posting a bunch of things for black history month that i'm personally very proud of yeah i've i've seen them on canva and i i really like them i haven't said anything but i like them emily you're doing a great job thank you um Follow us on Twitter at WH underscore pot. Our website is whining about herstory where you can find our merch. You can find a link to our Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 to get some bonus content. One day I'll get those video interviews up there. Emily's over here like I'm spiraling and I'm like, yeah, I haven't even touched that. Okay. Shit. I think we have one interview we haven't put up yet. We're doing the whining about two. Okay. Oh, yep. okay. 
It's fine. I'm sorry. Um, here's the thing. I have to write a 50-page paper. If I get to spiral and be a piece of shit, you also get to spiral and be, be a... I actually... I, I'm not being Neither a piece of, of shit. Neither of us are being a piece of shit. I'm like... We're I, struggling. We're not pieces of shit. That's actually a really good lesson. Like, don't talk to yourself the way that you would... T- like, you wouldn't talk to right. someone else the way you talk to yourself. So, like, don't do that. I was just teaching a client that. I'm like... They were, like, being really hard on themselves. And I'm like, what would you say if your friend was in this situation? Yep. And they were like, I wouldn't say any of that. And I'm like, treat yourself like a goddamn friend. I but didn't here's, say that exactly. Here's what words. you don't do understand, it. Treat Kelly. Treat yourself like your friend. Here's what you don't understand, Kelly. I am like the world's biggest I'm, piece of shit. No, me too. Don't worry. I'm over here like I am the worst friend in the world. So I'm having the Rapunzel moment where she's like, this is the best day ever. I am a terrible person. Yes. I'm never going back. I am a horrible daughter. Yeah. 100%. That's like my life. Yep. Yep. It's a constant. It, it's like that, uh, that Pharaoh's swing boat at the county yep. fair. It's just back yep. and forth. It's a pendulum. There Sorry, that's a, that's a more normal way to describe things. I knew you'd get there. Rate us five stars wherever you listen, because if you haven't noticed, we fucking need we the need validation. <laughs> Please validate us. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. Yo soy Emily. Yo soy Kelly. Have an empowered day. Adios. Bye. Bye.